places in the week that you can get to. It is just the most fantastic opportunity to take time out to pray and seek God for us, for others, for our world. Um, join us on the, in, in the morning, as Rich said, at 7am. We'll be in the chancel room. Uh, join us at 10 to 11 uh, each uh, evening where anyone can come along. But join us. Really want to encourage you. Don't miss a fantastic opportunity. And if you've not been in yet, um, you're in for a treat when you do visit because it is looking absolutely fantastic. Um, this morning I was speaking at another church, um, just up the road, a church called St. Melitus. And after the service, before I came back to St. Paul's, I popped home to get changed and uh, put the London Marathon on the TV. Does anyone see the London Marathon this morning? Any part of that? Okay, a few of us. Um, it's one of those programs, if I watch too much of it, I'm going to cry. So I only watch like a short section. Does anyone else have that trouble? Okay, two of us. Um, that's great. Yeah, I cry at the London Marathon. It's because I'm warm-hearted, tender-hearted, moved with compassion. Um, or that, yeah. Is it? I don't think it's bizarre. I think, anyway, let's go and get to that. So I wanted to see how Mo Farah was getting on. That was my reason for watching the London Marathon. Um, Mo Farah uh, came eighth in the end, uh, slightly outside what he was aiming for, but I wanted to catch up with that. And uh, one of the things that I always admire about someone like Mo Farah is the amount of work they have to put in to train for marathons and for races and and I googled today Mo Farah's training regime and felt incredibly insignificant and very unfit as I read through the 120 miles per week that he would run then would do extra work in the gym and then because he needs to do extra running but couldn't do the impact he'd get into a swimming pool and run I'm just thinking that's incredible. The, the cost and the sacrifice that someone like Mo Farah has to pay uh, in order to be as good as he is, is unbelievable. Because it takes so much hard work, doesn't it, to train for things like that. It takes hard work to revise for exams. It takes hard work to make a marriage work. It takes hard work to do well at, in a job, in a career. You know, things that we value, we will sacrifice for. We will uh, we'll sacrifice for the prize ahead, for uh, a personal best time in a race or for the sake of our children or a good relationship or, or whatever it might be. Sacrifice is made where we care about something or about someone else, where we love someone. I want us just to watch a, a clip from uh, one of my favourite films, Forrest Gump. Good. I'm glad we approve of that. That's excellent. So we're going to watch a little clip. I just set it up. Uh, Forrest is in the jungle in Vietnam, uh, become friends with someone who becomes a bit of an inspiration to him, a guy called Bubba. And uh, they're now under attack, and Forrest has just managed to get himself out of danger. And here's what happens next. so fast that pretty soon I was all by myself, which was a bad thing. Bubba! Bubba was my best good friend. I had to make sure he was okay. Bubba! And on my way back to find Bubba, 
Well, that was this boy laying on the ground. Tex. Couldn't just let him lay there all alone and scared the way he was. So I grabbed him up and run him out of there. And every time I went back looking for Bubba, somebody else was saying, Help me, Forrest, help me. I started to get scared that I might never find Bubba. I know my position is danger close. We got Charlie all over this area. I gotta have those fast movers in here now. Over. Lieutenant Dag is dead. I know he's dead. My whole goddamn platoon is wiped out. What are you doing? Just leave me here. Get away. Just leave me here. Get out. God, I said leave me here. God damn it. Then it felt like something just jumped up and bit me.
I'd have known this was going to be the last time me and Bubba was going to talk, I'd have thought of something better to say. Hey, Bubba. Hey, Forrest. Forrest. What just happened? You got shot. Then Bubba said something I won't ever forget. I want to go home. You know, the greatest motivation for sacrifice is always love. The greatest motivation to put ourselves on the line is love. We sacrifice for others because we love them. We put ourselves in harm's way for others because we love them. You know, if your house is on fire and you have a child left inside, it isn't bravery or courage or intelligence that sends you back into the house. It's plain and simple. It's love. Love casts out all fear. Love means that we'll lay down our life. Greater love, Jesus said, has no one than this, and they lay down their lives for their friends, which is exactly what Jesus did. As we were praying before the service, I just felt really prompted to pray for myself, really, but I felt it was maybe a word for all of us. Um, It's from John uh, chapter 3, and John the Baptist is talking about Jesus, and he's being asked this question. Don't you mind that Jesus is taking your disciples? And John just says this, he must increase and I must decrease. It's all about Jesus. When we think about sacrifice, when we think about love, when we come to Holy Week and we walk towards the cross, we think about Jesus. And as we come into the end of this little series entitled Jesus Is, it's all about him. Jesus is fully God. He is fully, uh, in him the fullness of God lives, but he's fully human. And he came to earth, born as a servant, as the lowest of the low, stooping down, coming to us. Jesus left the riches of heaven and came as a servant. He is still supreme. He is still above all. And he is the saviour. And Jesus came to save us. That's what it meant for him to sacrifice. That's what it meant for him to put himself in harm's way. That's what it meant for him to die upon the cross, as he came to save What did he come to save us from? Well, the thing is, it's our heart is what he came to save us from. Not our outward action, but the actions of our heart, the attitudes, the sin that lives within us. Tim Keller, um, a church leader in New York and a really famous writer, said this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. There is a problem in humanity. It's that we have this sinful nature. We have this need to be saved, this need to be rescued. And that's why Jesus put himself as a sacrifice. That's why he entered into enemy territory and came to save us. And the motivation behind it was love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son So whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. That's the motivation of Jesus. That's why he came. Jesus is the Savior. But why would Jesus come? Why would he come to sacrifice for us? Love conquers everything. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The joy set before him. What was this joy that Jesus saw? What was it that 
propelled him through that week. And we know as we journey through this week, we come to, to Maundy Thursday where we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying like he's never prayed with sweating drops of blood, agonizing over the cross. Where was the joy in that moment? The writer of Hebrews says, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think the joy is seeing you and I sat in the kingdom of God. I think the joy is seeing every human person responding to the, to the person of Jesus, what he's done for us. The joy set before him, the millions upon millions upon millions of people whose lives have been transformed by his message and his life. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He came for love and joy propelled him to his death. Love wins. It always has and it always will. God is love. It's really interesting. You talk to um, many friends. I'm not a parent, but many friends of mine are. And you talk about a moment when a parent holds their, their newborn child. And you hold that child. And you look at the child. And the, the experience I've been told time and time again is this. I have never felt love like it. I have never felt love like it. Imagine how God what God feels and thinks when he looks at you made in his image the love that is overwhelming for him and it's that love that motivates him to save God so loved the world that he gave his only son he so loved the world that it cost him everything and so the passage we're going to look at tonight speaks of Jesus as saviour you know, the three passages we've looked at in Philippians 2 a couple of weeks ago, uh, Colossians 1 last week, and, and Isaiah 53 tonight, um, they're all songs. They're all songs that um, were sung. Uh, Philippians 2 was a, an early Christian hymn about Jesus the servant. The, Colossians 1 was an early Christian song about Jesus being supreme above everything. And this was a song that Isaiah taught the people about a servant who would come. And he points to Jesus on the cross. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, or if you haven't really encouraged you to get one, we're going to look in quite a bit of detail at this passage. We're going to begin at Isaiah 52 verse 13 and read through to Isaiah 53 verse 12. It's entitled, The Suffering and Glory of the Servant. I'll read it to us. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and, for what, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Fathers, we read your word. Reveal Jesus again to us that he must increase and we must decrease. Glorify your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the context for this passage is Isaiah is writing to a people without a home, without a temple, uh, without a saviour in desperate need, realizing they've been taken into exile by the Babylonians and they were away from everything they knew to be true and right. The question they were asking is, has God abandoned us? Does God care? What's he going to do with us? And that's what Isaiah is speaking into. That's the situation. That's what the people, uh, where the people are at. But they've recognized it's not just their physical location or condition, the outward things, if you like, that are the problem, but it's the problem of the heart. They are desperate for God to come, and God had promised that he would to transform their hearts, to transform them from the inside out, to deal with the problem of their sin. That's what had caused the separation from God. That's why they'd been sent into exile, because they kept worshipping other gods. And they realized they were wrong, but they hoped and prayed that God hadn't abandoned them. And Isaiah is saying, in no way has God abandoned you. His first, his first words in, in, in this section of Isaiah that he's speaking to these exiled people is, Comfort, comfort, O Jerusalem. Comfort, my people. This is what the Lord says. Don't be afraid. The Lord knows, and he'll raise you up on eagles' wings. Isaiah speaking to this uh, broken people who are asking the question, has God abandoned us? Will he save us? And he says, Isaiah describes this person called the servant. And he talks about the servant in three or four different passages. And this is the the longest passage and the most significant about who this servant will be. Scholars will always say this is the Messiah they're pointing to, the Jewish Messiah they're longing for, the one who will come and not just deliver them from exile, the kind of physical exile they're in, but the exile they have in their hearts, the separation from God that they've experienced themselves personally. So what does it say about this figure? I mean, this figure, uh, this prophecy is pointing to and fulfilled in its fullness by Jesus on the cross. As we read it, we see that that this suffering servant has come and he's given his life and died on a cross for us. So what does it say about Jesus? It says, the first thing it says is this, is that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice. God enters humanity and takes human form. 
verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53. Or verses 2 to 3, sorry. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, fragile, human, in a family. He, he had roots. He came as one of us. That's what uh, we call the incarnation, God becoming fully human. He's a man familiar with pain and suffering. Verse 3, despised and rejected. This is so significant about what we believe about who God is. God is not immune from our pain. God is a God who suffers with us. Many of us might know the story of Lazarus and the one who Jesus raised from the dead. We see in John chapter 11. There's a really interesting thing about Lazarus. Jesus arrives, and Jesus has already said that this, this death will end with the God being glorified. Jesus already seems to know what he's about to do. But yet when he arrives, and he's greeted by Mary and Martha, his dear friends, it says this, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep when he knew he would raise Lazarus from the dead? Because Jesus weeps with those who weep. Jesus is alongside us in our pain. He knows what it is to suffer. God is not immune from our sufferings. You know, the Bible, we have that question, don't we? Where is God? How is God real if there's all this suffering in the world? If God loves us, why hasn't he done something? Well, God has decisively done something by immersing his son, Jesus, in this world, facing pain, dying a death of a criminal, separated from everyone and everything that we might live God knows what it is to suffer. God speaks to us through our pain because he's alongside us. He's able to do that. C.S. Lewis described our pain as God's megaphone. It's how God calls to us and draws us to himself. You know, we look at the life of Jesus and we have a theology of healing and miracles. We believe that God does that. What wonderful testimonies of lives changed we've heard this evening. And I know from talking to many others of you, of hearing stories of God at work in your life. We believe in healing. We believe in the miraculous. We see it in the life of Jesus. We see it in in the life in, in, in our world today. We pray for it. We seek it. But we also have a theology of suffering because we see it in the life and the death of Jesus. It's a reality that God is with us in our pain. And God brings meaning and redemption in the midst of pain. The cross is an instrument of torture. And we look at the cross today and we see a symbol of hope. That's what God does. He redeems our pain. The thing that sought to destroy us becomes the symbol of our hope. What areas of our lives might God be seeking to redeem? What, what path are you walking today? Because I believe God wants to redeem and transform us in our place of pain and bring hope. Jesus entered a world of pain and suffering and suffered with us. Romans 8 verse 28, one of the the most incredibly rich promises in the whole of the New Testament. For we know that in all things God works for good for those who love him according to his purpose. That is a promise I have clung to with my fingernails time and time and time again. God works for good in all things because he's entered our world and he knows what it is. So what is that for us? If Jesus sacrificed, entered humanity, gave himself for the sake of others, you know, that's the calling on the life of every Christian. We are to be people who lay down our lives for others. There is meaning to our pain 
and God is redeeming it. There is no such thing for a Christian as useless pain. Pain is awful. Grief is terrible. And we've been through that as a church family. We've been through that as individuals. We know what it is to suffer. I've been to Mozambique and seen the suffering that happens in the third world. And frankly, I see that and feel utterly humbled by what they go through day after day in order to see others come to faith in Jesus. It challenges me. It speaks to me. But I know that God is working for good because that's what he did through Jesus. And that's what he does today. So we follow Jesus to the places of pain and hurt. If God incarnated himself into our world, we aren't to separate ourselves from it. We are to get dirty and messy as we seek to bring God's message of good news and grace to those we meet. And we'll do that by sacrificing ourselves for others, by laying our lives down that others might live. The second thing is that Jesus was our substitute. He took our place. Read verse 4 to 6. Surely Jesus, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions, verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. It's that Jesus made a choice. It wasn't that God was in some way picking on Jesus. Jesus said, I will do it. Give it to me. I will carry the weight of their sin. I will take the separation that they deserve. I will pay the debt. I will set them free. Let me do it. Jesus, in giving his life on the cross, he fully participated in the plan of the Father to restore, save, and redeem humanity. Why? For love and joy. He loved us, and for the joy of seeing us transformed, he went to the cross. The the picture here is is of the Day of Atonement, the famous day each year when when the high priest would offer a bull uh, in in the Holy of Holies, for the sins of the people. And the other part of the day of atonement was the, the scapegoat. And this is the picture we have here. And the high priest would um, they'd take a, two goats and they'd take one of them. And the high priest would lay his hands on the top of the scapegoat, this little goat. And the symbol was that the, the high priest was passing all of the sin of Israel, the whole nation, onto the goat. And the goat was then sent into the wilderness. It was sent out from the people. You know, when Jesus went to the cross, they laid their hands on him. They beat him. They whipped him. They nailed him. And on him, they laid our sin, the sin of the world, on his shoulders. He who had no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be forgiven and go free. Jesus said, I choose that. I choose that because I love you. I choose that because I know what that will mean. In all of eternity, I choose to sacrifice. I choose to take your place and be your substitute. And Jesus gives us in that place peace with God and others, healing in every way, not just physical, but emotional and spiritual. We are restored and redeemed, that we're forgiven totally and truly. John, in his first letter, said, This is how we know what love is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and so we lay down our lives for others. We put ourselves in the place where we serve other people. That's how relationships come alive. That's how it works and we, we sacrifice and give ourselves up. And the third thing and the final thing is this, is that Jesus brought us salvation. Just the last couple of verses of that passage. Um, after he has suffered... 
he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And then verse 12, therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured his life out unto death. There are two little pictures here that I want to finish with. The first is this, is that the battle has been won. On the cross, Jesus won the battle. Verse 12, the start of it, I will give him a portion among the great and divide the spoils with the strong. What the picture of that is there is, is, is a, a general, if you like, a Roman general, or not a Roman general at that time, but a general coming back from battle and sharing out what he's got. This is what I've won for you, my people, and I'm going to give it to all of you. The words there for great and for strong actually mean numerous and many. It's for the huge multitudes of people. It says Jesus has, has died on the cross, laid his life down, and won the battle. And now he comes back and he shares the spoils of victory with us. The enemy thought he was defeated when Jesus died. Jesus won the greatest victory. What did he buy for us? He bought us freedom. He bought us uh, guilt and shame were taken from us. Freedom from that. Freedom from our past, from hurt, from addiction. Forgiveness of sin. That the enemies we have defeated and stripped of their power. Jesus won the battle. If we are going through a battle now, know that Jesus has already won. Hold on. Hold on. Jesus has already won. The victory has been won. And the end is in sight. And the second thing builds on that. And this is the glimpse of the resurrection. We don't see much of the resurrection in the Old Testament. But here is a glimpse of what Jesus is going to do. Verse 11, after he has suffered... And the suffering described in that passage can only lead to death. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The resurrection is here. And the resurrection has the final word on everything. As we journey this week, it's kind of cheating because we know how it ends. We know that he rose from the dead. But when we're walking through the hardships of life, when we're carrying disappointment and brokenness and fear, when we're struggling with grief and uncertainty and depression, we feel like that day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We feel like everything's died and why won't this pain go? But I want to remind us once again, the resurrection has the final word. Jesus came out of the tomb and he is alive today. You know, I've lost friends who have died too young. I've seen sorrow and anger overtake people. I've seen it overtake myself. I've battled loss and pain, but I know the resurrection has the final word. I know it does. I know that there's hope, and that's the thing we cling to. The Christians were known as resurrection people. That's the message the early church preached. They preached a Jesus who was alive. And that's what transformed everything. They went from hiding in a room to standing in the crowds. They went from worried about what would happen to them to gladly laying down their lives because they know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has the final word. Sin has been buried. The grave has been overcome. And death has been defeated. Salvation has come through Jesus, our Savior. I want to finish with this story. You may have heard it before. South African woman at the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. She'd um, lost both of her sons who'd been brutally murdered by a police officer. And she sat in the courtroom, in the, in the committee room. And there in front of her is the policeman who killed her two sons. He confesses to what happened with tears pouring down his face. 
the judge that, um, who's presiding over that particular case says to the woman what would, if she would like to say anything in response. She sat before this man who killed her family. She gets up and she walks over to the policeman. She takes him in her arms and says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for me, calls me to forgive. Not only do I forgive this man who killed my sons, but I call him my son and I invite him into my family. You see, the power of the resurrection at work in our lives, the power of the resurrection that enables us to forgive, the power of the resurrection that enables us to cling on and know that in all things, God works for good for those who loves us. Jesus is our savior. There is no one else. That's why he must increase and we must decrease. That's why it's all about him. It always has been and it always will be. Jesus is the good news and he's here among us now. The spirit comes to do the work of Jesus and to reveal Jesus to us. So why don't we ask him to do that in us now? Let's stand. And Father, thank you for Jesus, for his life, for his death, and for his resurrection. And Lord, we pray now, send your spirit upon us that we might know him better. Send your spirit upon us that we might be filled with his resurrection power. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, into every area of our lives. Come into the pain and the struggle. Come into the sin and the places we try to hide. Come. Come, reveal Jesus to us. Remind us of what he's done. Come. Come do the works of Jesus in our midst, Lord. the Lord would want to be restoring hope maybe for some you feel like you've been living without hope 
or that hope is gone. And as we've looked at Jesus tonight and the resurrection, he would want to be restoring hope. saying to one or two of us here that um, in our kind of biggest struggles and in the weak areas of weakness in our lives that's where God wants to use us and a sense of you never really thought that would be the case that you're trying to cover them up and make them look good but the Lord says no it's in that place of weakness that I'm strong my power is made perfect in your weakness as well that maybe for some they just want to just recommit themselves to following and to loving Jesus and just as we've talked as Chris has talked about Jesus just giving himself on our behalf but for some we just want to tonight just recommit ourselves to him as we recognise his love for us that we want to pour out our lives again in love for him. One more thing I, I just struck me is, is on the day of Palm Sunday, the crowd are cheering for Jesus and by the end of the week there's a crowd that are shouting crucify him and wonder for some of us whether actually we we just we've been in that place of shouting for Jesus and actually we're in a place now where maybe we just feel indifferent we just kind of you know we're not in that place of passionate excitement and we're all for God and, and going for it I think the Lord just invites us to come back to to him tonight just to say I want to sing the song of the Lord. I want to praise him again. I want to know that passion in my heart for Jesus that I once had that I've not got now. And it's like an invitation from God that he's not judging you or condemning you. He's just saying, come, just return, come back to me. And so I guess tonight we just, if anyone would like to kind of say to Jesus, do you know what? I want you to work in my life. I want to offer you the struggles that I'm going through. I want to ask you that you would minister to me in that place. We're just going to make some space at the front. Why don't you just come and kneel down and just say to Jesus, I want to recommit my life to you. I want to process some stuff with you. I want to worship you. I want to be prayed for. I want to know you better. But Jesus, I just want you. Just love as we worship and just to invite you to come and kneel down and we're just going to take some space to do that. Ministry team, come and kneel. Come and be part of what God is doing. And if you'd like prayer, just stay around and the team would love just to come and bless what God is doing. So as we worship, if you feel that's you, you just want to know Jesus better, you want more of him, just to step on out, come and kneel at the front. I'll be the first there. I won't be. But just come on out, come and kneel.
begin this holy week as we come to that place of remembering you being welcomed Lord Jesus into Jerusalem as we journey with you throughout the week we want to ask that in each of our hearts you would be alive in every way we want to pray, Lord, that our words would reflect you, that our eyes would see as you want us to see, that our ears would hear as you want us to hear, that our words 
would reflect your goodness and grace. And Lord, we want to say again to get today, welcome into our lives. Just as you stand or sit or kneel now, maybe just quietly in your own heart, just say, Lord, welcome again. Welcome again into my life. Welcome again, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, make this week a week where you're so welcome every day. And this week, Lord, make it a week where my heart is lost in love with you. Be welcome, Lord. And Lord, let me this week be someone who is not like the fickle crowd. Not those who cry Hosanna one day and crucify the next. But let me be somebody who cries Hosanna now and Hosanna next week. Keep us faithful to you, Lord, every day. So be welcome, Lord. Be welcome in our lives. you've never prayed that before and you've prayed that tonight for the first time we'd love to chat to you afterwards because I think that's such a, an important prayer and Chrissy shared this evening of people who she's met this week who've done that we were in Wormwood Scrubs prison this morning and there were men there who gave their lives this morning for the first time to our Lord you know it's a great thing when someone says yes to Jesus so Lord we want to pray let us be a yes community to you. And through our prayer, through our worship, through our gathering points, let your light shine brightly through us. And as the first people prepare to go into the prayer room this evening, we want to pray your blessing upon it. We want to pray your presence in it. We want to pray that each one who enters there would know your spirit upon them, that we, Lord Jesus Christ, might be changed, transformed, renewed this week as we as a community press into you. And so may God's blessing be upon us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May his blessing go before us. And may we today and this week know his goodness surrounding us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's still ministry up here. Come, receive prayer. Um, if you'd like to, there's hot cross buns and bread pudding of some description, apparently at the kitchen. You've got to go find out what that is. I've got no idea, but it sounds fun. Um, and let's stay to meet together as a community. Don't rush off. And uh, I want to invite you. People are going to go and pray in the prayer room very shortly. Some may have already got in there. Um, I don't know, but if you want to just stick your head around the door just for two minutes to see what it's like so that you're invited back this week to be part of the community 
that prays together this week, please do. You go up the chance room here, turn right through the chance room and have a look at what's going on in there. But be quick because people want to have booked it to pray out through tonight. Thank you.